Section 5 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan O. Impara. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton, Section 5. At the Sign of the World's End, The Bigotry of Bolshevism, by G. K. Chesterton. The bigotry of the Bolshevists is of a peculiar and interesting kind. We hear much of old people being bigoted in their antiquated ideas. It has always been my experience that the young are much more bigoted in their new ideas. I use the word bigotry in the only sense in which I have ever found it useful, and in that sense it is very useful. I mean by bigotry, not certainty or even fanatical certainty, but that weakness in the imagination which cannot even conceive the alternative of uncertainty or error. Suppose I say something, preferably something I do not say. For example, that Muhammad miraculously flew up into the sky. I do not think a man a bigot because he is sure Muhammad did nothing of the kind. I do not think him in the least bigoted because he says Muhammad must have done it by the aid of devils. I do not think him in the least bigoted because he wants to burn me at the stake for spreading the story. It is certain that the story of Muhammad has a great influence. It is tenable that its influence is to spread moral abuses and abominations such as polygamy and massacre and the discouragement of wine. Burning is bad, but it is not bigoted, for it only exaggerates the results of error. It does not necessarily misunderstand the origins of error. There are three types of men in such a case whom I should call bigots. One is the man who says, you must be a fool if you think a man ever flew up into the sky. He is a bigot, because he takes as self-evident what is not self-evident. To say the least of it, the case is more complex, and the evidence for levitation and other psychical powers, even in a modern sense, much more considerable. Then there is the second and far more deplorable fool who says boldly, you don't believe that a man ever flew up to the sky? And goes on to talk about delightful paradoxes and people who will have their joke until we pass into that state of musing when one wonders if the man had a knock on the head in infancy. But the third and worst sort of bigot is the young man who comes up to me and says, What? Haven't you read Grubsby's book? The whole thing has been explained. The Borge school held that levitation was subliminal but Grubsky has shown, etc., etc. And then he will tell you the explanation, that the word for sky in the original Arabic also means a stepladder or a camel, or that Muhammad was metaphorically accused of skylocking or being above himself. Or perhaps Grubsky has proved that it did happen by merely mechanical means of the most modern sort that the prophet was pulled up by means of the new science of aviation, by aeroplanes painted to resemble clouds according to the new science of camouflage. Now this is not impossible. But what is the matter with the young man is that he cannot be persuaded that I, while clearly seeing that it is not impossible, do really still think it is exceedingly improbable. He is convinced that I cannot have heard of Grubsky's theory. He is sure I have never realized the existence of aeroplanes. He is sure I have never even seen the word camouflage. As soon as he understood the theory, he adopted it. He is certain that if once I understand it, I shall accept it. He cannot bring himself to believe, what is the very simple fact, 
that I do understand it and do not accept it. I do really think levitation much more likely than the elaborate story of the cloud-painted aeroplane. I do really believe the miraculous event to be more probable than the scientific event. But he cannot believe that I believe it. In other words, he is a bigot. And being a young bigot, he is far more bigoted than an old one. The very small but sincere minority that is the soul of Bolshevism consists of young bigots of this kind. They are marked by this special mental character, that they have not only themselves accepted their system because it is a system, but they are convinced that anybody else will accept it as soon as he realizes that it is a system. In other words, they cannot believe that anybody who can see that it explains everything can nevertheless hold that it explains everything wrong. Every decent detective story, for instance, consists of about five explanations, each of which explains everything and explains everything wrong. And in the case of sociological explanations, there is this further falsification that it is always possible to take one social element only and follow its ramifications all over the world without recognizing anything else in the world. It is like a railway map of Europe which leaves out all the roads and all the rivers. Indeed, the different generalizations about the modern world are very like those alternative maps of the same area found in an atlas, one colored according to geological soils, another shaded to show the height of hills and mountains, another dotted with populations, and so on. Each of these is a universal truth, and each is a narrow one. What the Bolshevists print for us is a proletarian map of Europe. It would be easy to overthrow their whole theory by simply printing a peasant map of Europe. It would be easy to print a map of Europe in terms of any particular type of work, peasant or proletarian. In the countryside where I live, the chief occupation is chair-making. And in the chief town, there are plenty of labor disputes about it. We could easily draw up a chair-maker's chart of the whole world. We could easily do it so as to suggest that the whole world is more or less occupied in making chairs, and that it is merely a matter of less rather than more. There would be a congested area of chairs over a place like Paris, where there must be a vast multitude of them outside all those countless cafes. Chairs would begin to thin and fade away in the direction of Constantinople until we came to the true east, where people prefer to sit curled up on cushions on the floor. But it must be noted, for this is the vital point, that in this sort of statistical chart, there would never be any mention of cafes or cushions. There would never be any mention of any of the other human habits which modify or multiply the habit of making chairs. It would simply be implied that there was a lot of it in one place and a little of it in another place, and there would always be a little of it in every place. There are cafes in Constantinople as well as in Paris. There are presumably some chairs dotted about the howling deserts of Siberia. The king of the cannibal islands possibly possesses one three-legged stool, which he uses as his throne, as he possesses one top hat, which he uses as a crown. But all this human variety and complexity is left out in the type of reasoning which reasons only in terms of one thing. Thus, the socialists will talk about the Poles as if they were all to be treated entirely as industrial trades unionists, which is as if we were to insist on the Dutch being paid properly as alpine guides or on the Swiss being suitably remunerated for having built dikes against the sea. They will talk of the proletariat in Serbia, which is as if I were to plead for the hardy peasantry of Serbiton. But there is another psychological effect of this bigotry of a system which is also rather curious. 
The bigot always begins by supposing us ignorant of its beginnings. He thinks we do not understand the very first steps of his argument, whereas it is generally the last step that seems to us mysterious, and that only because it is inconsequent. Therefore, he laboriously repeats, with elaborate lucidity, the obvious parts of his argument and repeats them so often that he never gets to the only point that could puzzle anybody. The socialist will tell us, in the tone of one teaching an infant school, that labor produces wealth, that capitalism controls too much of the wealth, that there is an economic conflict between labor and capitalism, and almost as a light and ornamental peroration, therefore he proposes to establish state or communistic control. It is as if a man were to say, I have planted some bulbs in my garden which will not grow without sun. My neighbor has built a wall which keeps off the sun. I am resolved to endure such a wrong no longer, and therefore I will give the bulbs tomorrow morning either to the Prince of Wales or to the policeman at the corner of the street. When we appear a little mystified, he begins all over again with the same laborious lucidity and heartbroken forbearance, explaining to us that the chemical action of the sun upon bulbs has been studied by botanists and found to result in their germinating or sprouting, and that the consistency of a brick wall is such that the sun's rays can with difficulty penetrate it. What he cannot apparently bring himself to believe is that we do not think the bulbs will sprout any better in the pocket of the policeman. And that is the long and the short of the whole argument about nationalization and state ownership. Now it is perfectly true that there is a good deal more to be said even about the proposition that labor in the ordinary sense produces all wealth in the ordinary sense. But the more we consider the very simple cases in which his principle is more or less true, the more clearly we shall see that the socialist deduction from it is quite startlingly untrue. Assuming, if only for the sake of argument, that a laborer digs in the ground and produces a turnip, which leaves out a good deal, and assuming for the sake of argument that our object is merely that he should control what he produces, it seems to me obvious that the safest way of ensuring it is to let him own the turnip and eat it. It is to allow him to put it away, not merely as a peasant puts away wealth in a stocking, or a hole in the ground, but to put it safely into the money box of his mouth and the strong box of his stomach. Nobody could control the turnip more completely than that. But it seems to me quite reverse of self-evident that socializing the turnip will give the man producing it more power of controlling it. Communism must either mean a scramble in which the strongest thief takes the turnip or, much more probably, an organization by which a few people allot what turnips they choose to what people they choose. I shall try to show in another article that this is not only what Bolshevism means, but what the Bolshevists themselves say that it means. But the point here is that if you tell the bigot that you do not see what his own solution has to do with his own problem, he will look at you sadly and begin to explain his problem all over again. End of section 5. Recording by Alan O. Impara.